We're in a world where, now where almost half of young people now in some surveys in the US are now preferring you know, uh, uh, forms of, of authority and authoritarian rule to democracy. And that's frightening <laughs> because, again, this, this is saying, well, we just want someone who's going to give us the answers. And down that route we saw in the 20th century is obviously the abyss. It's an awful way to go. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Jerome Booth, an economist and author whose latest book is about mass groupthink. Jerome talks about how government and big tech have been working to control people's behaviour. And why so many people um, appear to have mental health problems, because they can't cope with some of these really quite awful messages that they're being told, many of them totally wrong. There is no reason really to have a mental health crisis today. No, things are quite positive in the world. And the importance of breaking out of groupthink and not just following the next big thing. And it's bizarre that some of the most um, ridiculous sort of conformity and, and um, cowardice really is coming from uh, you know, middle-aged uh, people uh, who, who really should know better. And they, they've just sort of, it's all such a, uh, a confusion. They think, well, I better just uh, cow to these this bullying tactics of whatever it is, some activist group saying you have to do this now and you have to do that. I'm Lee Hall and this is British Thought Leaders. Jerome Booth, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. Your latest book is called uh, Have We All Gone Mad? I think yeah. it's a question many of us have asked in recent years. Uh, why did you choose this title and, and what inspired you to write this book? Well, there's, there are no prizes for the answer, by the way. <laughs> it's really a book about mass groupthink, and I'll explain what that is. But um, it's really, uh, hopefully, is going to help people understand how a lot of very different things are connected. Um, one of the early reviewers, uh, uh, you know, a friend of the family, uh, about my age, uh, read it and said, you know, not only do I realise now I'm not on my own, there are other people who think, but now I understand how things are connected. And that, for me, was what I was trying to achieve. Mass groupthink comes from groupthink. And groupthink was a term invented in the 70s uh, by Irvin Janis to describe how decision-making in a group of people can go badly wrong because there's no proper challenge. And the classic example would be uh, the thinking behind the, the Bay of Pigs invasion right. in the Kennedy administration, which you know everybody thought they, that the, the president wanted this, so they all went along with it. And nobody actually stood back and said, well, is this a good idea? Or what are the actual alternatives? So that when later the Cuban Missile Crisis came, Kennedy had worked out that wasn't the way to make decisions. And he had different groups, and he had proper challenge. And he wasn't in the room when they were deciding. Um, and since then, since the 70s, there have been management consultants who have been using this concept to make better board decisions. That's groupthink. What mass groupthink is, the idea that millions of people can be completely wrong about something in a way that a little bit of checking would, would demonstrate is wrong. And to get mass groupthink, the obvious question arises if you're, you know, if you're presented with this is, well, how could that possibly be? How can a million people get it wrong? Mm. And one of the mechanisms to ensure that mass groupthink exists is huge discipline. So first of all, there becomes a sort of moral dimension, and it becomes very binary. Either you are you know, in the groupthink or compliant, or you're evil. There's nothing in between. Right. The other sure sign that something's going on uh, is complete lack of challenge for the, for the fundamental uh, underpinnings. 
And any sort of debate has to be really closed down. I mean, if there's a sort of not real debate, that's fine, just for show. But any serious debate about whether the basic truths are correct, uh, that has to be rigorously shut down. So just by saying those few things, most people watching this will work out a few topics you think you want to <laughs> recently where you think, well, that's, that's what's going on. And the point is, groupthink has been with us um, you know, forever. I mean, there's nothing new about groupthink. Um, what is new, I suppose, um, is new forms of communication technology. So whilst the internet and social media have got a lot of very positive features, they've also um, led to a lot of intolerance, a lot of tribalism. Um, the network effects from what's going on are much more powerful than most people appreciate. And the end result is a lack of basic challenges uh, that we all face. And we have to, I think, understand that and, and adapt to that. So that, that's a, sort of another thing that's going on. Fundamentally, I start the book by talking about human psychology. We're actually much less rational than we think we are. So is this the battle between rationality and emotion? I think it's, um, that's one way to put it, but I think it's more subtle. Um, we basically um, evolve rationality as a way to explain the world because we don't like uncertainty. It creates anxiety. And so we, we, we love stories. The human race likes stories. And a, and a, a rationality is a, just a, a, a way to form stories. Um, so one of the interesting things, this is coming out of uh, some uh, the psychologist, Jonathan Haidt in particular, and I'll come back to him. Uh, he says, if you, you know, are in your belief system and there's new evidence and it complies with your view of the world, then you ask yourself the question, can I believe it? And the answer is always yes. But if that evidence disagrees with it, you ask yourself a very different question, which is, do I have to believe it? And the answer is always no. In other words, evidence is not something which creates a, a rational, which feeds into a rational process, which we come, uh, and then we come to an answer. It's the other way around. We, first of all, we work out what we want, which is driven by our passions, our interests, our psychology, and then we come up with rationalizations of why we want it. Another thing that Jonathan Haidt says, which I think is a, a very uh, 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 visual way to think about the problem, is that you can think of our conscious selves as people sitting on our unconscious selves, an elephant. And the interesting thing is that sitting on top of the elephant, we, our conscious selves, have no power of what the elephant does. So it's just wandering around. It just goes wherever it wants. And we are, if you like, the press secretary who then justifies where the elephant's going. But here's the really interesting thing. The more erudite, the more intelligent, the more educated you are, the better you are at convincing yourself and others sitting on their elephants that you are telling the elephant where it's going. Right. And so there's this very peculiar feature that mass groupthink is more prevalent amongst the elites than everybody else, which in itself is a, a case for proper political challenge, for you know, democracy, for you know, uh, uh, not thinking things through uh, uh, from an ivory tower. You add in a bit of hubris, and, and you know, a lot of, there are a lot of people around in, in our elites who just think they know best. And so that's a psychological problem that we 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 just we've never been that rational. So people also make these echo chambers where they only hear views that match with the views they already have. That's true, and and this has been, this has obviously got to levels which are now really quite worrying. I mean, it was over ten years ago when a father walked into a Target store, you know, in, in the states, a, a brand 
the store, um, wanting to see the manager, absolutely furious because uh, his 16-year-old daughter had been uh, receiving you know, emails and, and material for, you know, for, for pregnancy stuff. And she'd never even been to the store. Right. And the manager didn't know about it, but it was the algorithms that had worked out that she was pregnant, which she was. And the father didn't know. The father didn't know. So that was over a decade ago. We're now in a position where there are continuous experiments um, uh, by these big tech companies. One, when one's, if you like, service uh, uh, using big te technology is, is free to the user, that means you're not the customer. Yeah. Um, the customer is the corporation that buys your data. And this idea that it's anonymous, of course, is, is nonsense because with a very few pieces of extra data, you can de-anonymize pretty much everything. And what the customer wants is uh, reliability in customer choices. And not merely um, are there continuous experiments to see how customers, what they believe and how they might behave, but it's a very small step from that to actually trying to mold behavior. And of course, that's been going on. So on the one hand, you've got big tech doing that. Yeah. And then you've got government using fear and the nudge units, which, uh, again, has a very negative uh, impact. And one of the, the second chapter of the book is about social capital. And what I'm arguing there is there's a long stream of research um, that is basically demonstrating that uh, uh, if you don't trust each other in a community and you don't trust government, um, you get very negative effects in terms of, you know, commerce and, and people's happiness and all the rest of it. And fear is the big killer of that uh, social capital. So the use of government fear may in the short term look advisable in the sense of it, it helps them reach a certain objective, but it erodes the entire trust in government and of people in each other, in their neighbours, which is erosive of uh, our entire liberal democracy, frankly. And I think the fact that there is no ethical framework uh, for nudge units in governments, uh, by and large, is, is an absolute scandal. They should be. And um, what's just happened with lockdowns uh, demonstrates, I think, some of the pitfalls. Is groupthink a, a weapon when a society is becoming more authoritarian? Well, I think, I think, it's a, I think we're stumbling into a, a series of serious problems. Uh, what we need is some proper leadership as opposed to what you might call followership, which is working out what uh, uh, you know, focus groups think and then try to get ahead of it slightly. Um, I'm in favor of politicians generally just turning their phones off. <laughs> um, they need time to think. Um, Montgomery in World War II, one of the first things he did when he took over the Eighth Army was uh, he told people not to wake him up early in the morning because he wanted to sleep. And, and battles used to last, you know, maybe 36 hours. He'd go to sleep at the beginning of the battle because then he would be fresh and rested for when he was actually needed later on when things had started to go wrong. Our leaders don't do that. They try to stay up the whole time and they're constantly, you know, trying to get ahead of things. And they, they are losing uh, uh, the battle as, as they do that in terms of leadership. So I think, I, I, I did say at the beginning, this is an optimistic book, I do think First of all, groupthink is quite easy to detect. It's not difficult. Um, most people in groupthink, mass groupthink, are not aware that they are in it. I mean, I may be, we're both probably subject to it ourselves without realizing it, but um, we, we have to constantly challenge ourselves and be challenged. So there's some very simple um, 
I mean, the whole last chapter of the book is basically about how you can identify groupthink individually, but also maybe what we should do with some of our institutions. In terms of institutions, um, you know, is there effective challenge from people with fundamentally different views at the board of an organization? Um, that's a very simple question. Uh, there are a number of media organizations where I could say the answer is definitely no. <laughs> um, you know, are debates, is there an effort to try and close down certain avenues of thought? Are certain topics simply not covered? Um, you know, these are obvious questions. You mentioned the elites several times. I mean, one would like to think our politicians and policymakers are immune to this kind of group thing. But I know Dominic Cummings was talking to the, the parliamentary yeah. inquiry and he mentioned group things several times when they were looking at lessons learned. Are, are the politicians just as susceptible as that? Uh, I, I think more so. Really? <laughs> more so, definitely. I mean, because they are the elite. They are more intelligent. They have less time than most people to sit back and, and uh, uh, muse on you know, uh, think deeply about things. Hmm. Um, so I do think they are more prone, uh, but I do think it's fixable. And I think, um, I do think, you know, appropriate challenge, like Kennedy, you know, in, in the 60s, he, he changed the way the decisions were made in governments. And that's quite, we know how to do that. It's been, it's happened before. We just have people who have fundamentally different views and you listen to them and you, you know, uh, in a calm way, try to pick through what they're trying to say and where there's any validity in, in their arguments. That sort of, that sort of challenge is, is very rare, I'm afraid to say, including in cabinet. So with the media, are they, are they leading the groupthink or are they following the groupthink? Well, groupthink gets led by uh, some fanatics. They certainly, they may, some of them may be in, in, in the media, but I think more important is this idea that um, this is a this is a herd instinct. It's a very tribal thing. Right. Um, and one of the interesting things about the postmodernism um, is that words are very important. Uh, all well understood this. Once you can reduce people's vocabulary and invert the word meanings, uh, you're starting to control how people think, and that makes them more uh, uh, susceptible to control and programming, if you like. Um, and so there are sort of certain memes and these ideas, they cannot be questioned. And they're often very vague. I mean, you see this in Soviet period where, where a word means one thing one week and then the leadership just changes it arbitrarily. And um, this, is, this is the world that um, I'm afraid uh, this path leads down to, a world of totalitarianism. Uh, if you go back two and a half thousand years, um, and this debate is still relevant in politics today. You had uh, the sort of late works of Plato. He wrote a lot about uh, uh, the Republic, the, the, the book The Republic, of course, and politics. His idea of you know, the most important question in politics was who should be leader. Hmm. And a lot of people still think that's the most important question. He, he thought the answer was the wise, I himself. <laughs> this is despite nine of his own students going on to become tyrants. Uh, his own two uncles were head of the, uh, the, the tyranny of 30, who in peacetime, after the Peloponnesian Wars, uh, in eight months managed to kill 5% of the population. So um, that's probably not a good <laughs> recommendation. Socrates and his followers said, well, that's the wrong question, because whoever you uh, select as, as leader, whether they're wise or not, uh, the moment they become powerful, you know, everything changes, and it's a gamble. The most important question in politics is not who should be leader, but how do you hold power to account? 
how do you constantly challenge those who are in power to get them and to help them make the right decisions? And that, I think, is still today, two and a half thousand years on, still a question in a lot of people's minds. We're in a world where, now where almost half of young people now in some surveys in the US are now preferring you know, uh, uh, forms of, of authority and authoritarian rule to democracy. And that's frightening. <laughs> Because, again, this, this is saying, well, we just want someone who's going to give us the answers. And down that route we saw in the 20th century is obviously the abyss. It's an awful way to go. Uh, power is never uh, freely given. It's only ever taken. And the moment you, you give it up, that's it. You're not getting it back. So uh, that's the lesson of, of 20th century politics. And liberal democracy is worth fighting for. So what I'm trying to do in this book is say the one thing that, Socrates did say, he, he absolutely said, he, he insisted on, was wake up. He said, everything else as a teacher, I can state my views, it's up to the student what to decide. But the one thing I insist on is that you wake up and you realize what's going on. And I think likewise, as long as we can do that, I don't have any answers, I've just got questions. But the book is trying to work out, it's trying to show a little bit how these themes have, have, have connected with each other and why we are in this mess and why so many people um, appear to have mental health problems, because they can't cope with some of these really quite awful messages that they're being told, many of them totally wrong. There is no reason, really, to have a mental health crisis today. Uh, things are quite positive in the world. Um, so, uh, but that is, you know, we've got, as I said, big tech and government, both, if you like, working along the same direction. Coming back to what I was saying earlier, when I was talking about big tech trying to predict of course, what they really want is to program people's behavior so they're totally predictable. This is a dumbing down. This is sort of Aldous Huxley world rather than Orwell. But that's, you know, that's, we can have a debate about whether Huxley or Orwell is more likely. But um, something along those lines is the inevitable consequence if, if we don't you know, all uh, do our bit. Uh, I'm very optimistic because I think actually uh, governments that try to impose policy through fear, there's going to be a backlash. There's already starting to be backlashes. I, I have great confidence in most people's ability to express dissent against this sort of coercion. Uh, there's a strong psychological need to be independent of thought. And um, the question is how much damage gets done before we come to our senses, really. We're big fans of ancient China here. And there's some emperors, uh, great emperors, who surrounded themselves with people with different views rather than yes-men because they wanted to be challenged and, and make sure they were making the right decision. Yes. It seems in modern times we're kind of going the opposite and, and direction. Course, uh, the Roman emperors, yeah. know, in, 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 uh, when they had their, their, uh, uh, their triumphs, who would have uh, someone standing next to them whispering in their ears, all men are mortal. <laughs> uh, so uh, you're right. I think challenge is you know, absolutely essential for better decision-making. Are we losing the ability to kind of think critically and take on other views? I think we have to constantly learn that it's important and how to do it. Um, and uh, that's right. And as I said, what we're battling against is completely normal throughout history. What's new, what's accelerated it, is this new form of communication. Just the geography uh, 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 you know, used to have a, an impact on random encounters. You walk down the street, you, you meet your neighbours, you are necessarily polite to them because you have to see them more than once <laughs> and um, you know they may talk about something and you think well that's daft but you, you you go through the motions and you have a conversation and maybe might that might make you think even something as, as simple as that 
helps you think from different perspectives. And you're in a room, and you're just looking at a screen, and your friends are from all over the world, and they're self-selected. They're selected on the basis of whether they agree with you in the first place. You're not going to get that. And remember also, there are about 150 people that we can really have relationships yeah. with. So as, as that number gets to 150, we just push out other people. And so the, the, the network effects, the social media, you know, there are some good factors. There are some good things. But we just haven't learned how to cope with it. I think s there are encouraging signs that some of the newer generations have actually sort of rejected some of this. And they are learning. So, and it's bizarre that some of the most um, ridiculous sort of conformity and, and um, cowardice, really, is coming from uh, you know, middle-aged uh, people uh, who, who really should know better. And they, they've just sort of, it's all such a, uh, a confusion. They think, well, I better just uh, cow to these, this bullying tactics of whatever it is, some activist group saying, you have to do this now and you have to do that, a lot of it arbitrary. But to put your head above the parapet uh, is not only the, the right thing to do, but it's also the thing, it's the, it's the road less traveled at the moment because people are, they, they're a bit discombobulated and they don't really know <laughs> Uh, what they should be doing, and it's you know it kind of wreck your career if you say something politically incorrect these idea you know th these days. Going back to the lockdowns, mm -hmm. I mean if you disagreed with the official narrative, it was considered kind of morally wrong. Yeah. And then we had this idea of we have to follow the science, and and it was used to close down discussions on anything else. Do you think this was pretty much the most extreme example of groupthink we're going to experience? Oh. It was certainly an extreme. <laughs> Whether it's the most extreme, that's a different question, because okay. uh, there are other candidates there. But, um, but I think it was a clear indication of, of how not to depend on, on scientific advice if you're a political leader. Uh, and by the way, most of it wasn't science. It was modeling. As, and as someone, I mean, I did a, a, a doctorate using mathematical programming at Oxford years ago. <laughs> um, you know, modeling is, we used to say, garbage in, garbage out. Um, you know, if your assumptions are wrong, you know, your outcome is wrong. I, and I'll tell you the story of the, um, the tale, I should say, of the, um, the uh, king who goes into the forest uh, and he sees a bullseye with an arrow right in the middle of the bullseye. And he thinks, wow, that was, that was a good shot. Where's, who, who, who made that shot? And this young man, this teenager, comes forward and he said, I did that. And where did you shoot it from? Over there. Wow, that's a huge distance. You must come and join my, my troop. Uh, um, and then later on, his new colleagues are asking, well, how did you manage to do that? He said, it was easy. I shot the arrow into the forest. And then where it landed, I went up and painted a bullseye around it. <laughs> so a lot of modeling is like that. If you have 30 uh, you know, climate models, one of them might be more or less accurate. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the problems with the, uh, the COVID modeling was you know, garbage input. Um, and the problem is that you know, modelling fundamentally isn't science. It's not prone to uh, uh, the same rigour. Um, it is just a, a function of taking assumptions and, 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 and extrapolating. The, the role of a politician to hide behind that is an act of cowardice. Uh, the job of the scientist is not to make policy decisions. It's to advise policymakers who, who take that, weigh up that and other information and, and work out what should be done. I think one of the interesting things, certainly in the UK, I'm more familiar with, uh, is that in the UK, certainly, you know, we had uh, a whole program of what to do if there was an epidemic. And uh, there are some people who say it was you know, related only to influenza, wasn't relevant. I think a lot of it was highly relevant. And what we got was the whole thing getting uh, chucked out. And clearly, and this is what 
uh, you know, Cummings uh, was talking about in his uh, uh, evidence to the to, to Parliament. A lot of you know what then happened was panicked uh, uh, groupthink, uh, thinking on the hoof, um, and certainly what didn't happen was proper what I would call cost-benefit analysis. And here we have another problem that, and this is a psychological thing, we have this idea of an emergency and the prudential motive, um, which in a way is the opposite to rational cost-benefit analysis. See, the word emergency means run. It means panic. It means don't think. It means stop debating. It means do not consider alternatives. This is the overwhelming priority. But the moment you have that baked into policy making, then you're effectively saying, don't consider all the other policy objectives, all the other possibilities. Don't consider the costs of you know, what you're doing, the costs and the, and the benefits. Don't even think about whether the costs of doing what you're about to say outweigh the costs of doing nothing, because that might be true as well. Uh, just run, just do it. And so it excludes. So what we're seeing now in the UK, for example, is uh, it's not an exaggeration, I think, to say that large part of the NHS was effectively closed for business uh, as the NHS became a COVID-only service. And now what we're seeing is huge numbers of health problems, particularly, I mean, just in cancer alone, you're probably going to have more uh, uh, additional preventable deaths just from cancer than you arguably died from COVID. So this was a clear policy choice, and it was clearly wrong with hindsight, and that was due to groupthink. And the alternative is actually having proper assessment, taking the time, having a proper assessment of what the different policy options look like and who benefits and who, you know, what are the costs uh, overall. And, th you know, that technique is there and it wasn't used, simply wasn't used. So if COVID wasn't the number one, his is with the number one. Well, I mean, there are lots of, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I, the, the point of the book is to say, this is a phenomenon which is everywhere. Everybody who's looking at this will, will have their own idea of what's the biggest thing. I have to say that there's nothing unnatural about groupthink. It's a tribal necessity that we sort of, and to be honest, the, the, the elephant in the room, if you like, is organized religion. Organized religion is a form of, uh, you know, a, a moral uh, shared beliefs. And you could say that because you have different religious systems in the world and over history, and they have some very different beliefs that are clearly contrary to each other, then they can't all be right. So I leave that with, with you. So there's nothing new in this idea of group thing. I, I, what you're probably uh, trying to egg me on to, of course, is, is uh, uh, climate change. Um, and yes, I do think that there is a, a big difference between, I'm not going to talk about the science of, of climate because I'm not a scientist. But whatever you think about the climate, there's been one line on what the policy response should be. And I don't think there's been a proper debate, and I don't think there's been a uh, clear cost-benefit analysis. Um, I think a lot of people, certainly in Britain, don't really understand the cost of net zero. It's probably hundreds of thousands of pounds per household. It's that big. Yeah. Plus, it won't work because uh, China is building two thermal power stations a week. And unlike the ozone uh, uh, problem, and, and we had a, a technological solution, which was actually in everybody's interest. Every country had a, an economic incentive to cooperate. There's no way that that is ever going to be the case uh, until with, with, with reducing carbon dioxide emissions until we have new technologies. So rather than pretending that uh, you know, we can 
go to net zero and that everybody else will follow. Actually, they're all laughing at us and building, not only building power stations, but using that energy uh, to uh, sell us all the wind turbines and everything else and electric cars. Uh, because their energy and therefore production costs is so much cheaper than ours, they can compete and wipe out the competition. So we basically, it's a huge, net zero basically means zero jobs. That's what it, you know, and it also means huge cost and it's not necessary. And of course, there's certain elements where it's environmentally damaging as well. Not least something like an electric car, which, because it's 50% heavier and most air pollution from cars comes from tires. That means you get more t more air pollution from an electric car than you do from a from a petrol one. Uh, so there is all this um, uh, uh, confusion. We know only a very few things about um, uh, 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 climate change. We know that over the last 150 years, which is pretty much where we've got any sort of reliable uh, data on temperature, because we've been taking uh, you know land-based thermometer readings that the temperature in the last 150 years have gone up about a degree and a degree and a half. And we know also, pretty certainly, that the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere has gone from about 180 parts per million to about 415 or a little bit more now, parts per million. Now, the optimal uh, CO2 in the atmosphere for plant growth is between 1,000 and 2,000, so a lot higher, which is why professional greenhouses often pump in carbon dioxide. So one of the things that we do know for sure is that the planet is greener, and that's NASA data. But there's an inconvenient truth, so people don't, particularly in arid areas, because a lot of plants evolved in a period of time when um, there was less oxygen, far less oxygen in the atmosphere, and oxygen was a toxin. And to expel it, they also expel water. So particularly in arid, arid areas, as you increase the CO2 in the atmosphere, it helps plants uh, 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 take in CO2 without uh, um, as many pores and therefore they can survive. So particularly arid areas have, have greened. Um, that's inconvenient. We also know that CO2 is a greenhouse gas and we also uh, uh, we, you know, know uh, that um, the, the climate is a function of two very um, unstable fluid systems, complex chaotic systems, the atmosphere and the oceans. For every element of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere there are 50 in the ocean and the oceans have cycles of a thousand years. Uh, we've got 150 years data. Now there are ice core data, which is less accurate, and it goes down a lot further, 50 million years. And there are, within that data, clear correlations between um, temperature and CO2 emissions, and positive correlations. Unfortunately, for the alarmists, the temperature tends to precede the CO2 increase by about 700 to 1,000 years on average. In other words, Probably more credible is that as the planet is warming for whatever reason, occasionally, and it does, we go through cycles all the time, um, the heated ocean is actually uh, 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 sending more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and it's that way around. Who knows? I'm not a scientist. There are all sorts of people with different theories. What I do know is that, you know, following people like Steve Coonan, who was President Obama's uh, chief uh, scientific advisor, Senate-appointed, uh, well-known Stanford physicist, has said very clearly, if you just look at the IPCC data, the International Panel for Climate Change, it's very clear there is no emergency. In other words, it's a serious problem. We don't know, but it could well be. Prudent thing is you know, to do something about it, certainly think about it. Develop new technologies, though. And if we've got 50 years, we, that's what we should be doing. We should be developing new technologies which are going to work, just as with 
the ozone layer. We had technology to solve the problem. We've got time to do that. We've also got a few very strong leads <laughs> on where we should be going. We're actually not spending that much money on, on research. What we are spending a lot of money on is, is basically kicking ourselves in the, in the foot and, and, and you know, stopping ourselves doing, uh, 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 using technologies which are proven and tested. So I think there is you know, some basic issues about this. And, but because, it's become, because it is group thing, there is a moral dimension. And so just my saying what I've just said now, for, uh, for some people, I'm evil. It's not, it's not a question of can we have a rational debate. Just mentioning this topic is, is a no-go. And that's, I think, a clear indication of groupthink. Your book is not kind of doom and gloom. There's definitely optimism running through that we can escape mass groupthink yes. on various issues. And how are we going to do that? Well, as I said, the whole last chapter is, is about exactly that. Um, and I think one has to be very careful about one source of information. Um, and that means trying to read around, read around a subject. It means deep reading. It means reading books. <laughs> um, and I think it means you know, thinking for ourselves. I mean, there's no, there's no shortcut. Um, but it also means uh, you know, trying to familiar ourselves with you know, other points of view. I mean, when, I, when Nigel Lawson first approached me and said, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in climate or anything, I taught at, at um, Christchurch in Oxford, and he was a student there, and I met him through that. And uh, I knew he, his first cabinet job um, had been energy minister. And, uh, and then he'd written this book later on, uh, and he'd, he'd created this uh, uh, educational charity, uh, which is focused entirely on policy, uh, energy policy. And, and I, you know, I was interested, so I read a few things. And what's absolutely fascinating is there is really no debate. Um, I've only ever seen one debate, and it was in a private members club. And it was completely one-sided, as in the, 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 the supposedly consensus holder got completely demolished on every single point when it came to actual factual information. It was just wrong about almost everything. And there was no comeback. It's not as if there's, uh, this is one of the reasons why I suppose discipline and, and no debate is important, because the moment there is a debate, they lose frankly, uh, pretty much consistently. <laughs> Again, you know, why is it that a million people can believe something that is totally wrong? And that's the answer, by not having a debate and not having any challenge. So th that's, again, why I'm optimistic. You need one bit of challenge. And because a lot of people are, they have been bullied, they are cowards, they won't, they won't come back. Once, once you've sort of won a, a, an element of debate, they just move on. They just ignore it. They just, just move on to something else. <laughs> um, so it's quite an interesting dynamic, but I'm optimistic because I can see that how change can happen. And it can actually happen fast. Um, as someone said, and I've forgotten the quote exactly, um, but when you're trying to wake up people who are pretending to be asleep, it's rather difficult. But my rejoinder to that is um, when one of them actually then does wake up and they, all the rest of them can see them waking up, they all wake up at the same time. So actually coming out of this pretended sleep can actually be quite fast. And then, of course, suddenly we'll have a lot of people saying, oh, but I knew that all along. And then it'll be a blame game. And oh, I, I was saying that, of course, ages ago. The fact that they weren't, we'll let that pass. But um, as far as I'm concerned, as long as we get to more sensible policy on a number of areas, that's the main, that's the main priority. Jaron Booth, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you.